turn with me to the book of James, chapter 4. James chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 4 through 6. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity? With God. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace? Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we ask for help this evening to understand these hard and even harsh-sounding words in this text before us. Father, prepare our hearts to receive this, this stern warning that James gives us And Father, we ask that if any don't know you, they would come to know you. And Father, we ask that all of your people here today would would heed this warning that is given in this text. Help me to preach it faithfully and, and clearly. We ask for the Spirit's help. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we continue here in chapter 4 where James is strongly addressing the sins of his reader. And as I pointed out last time, we have almost a climax of, of, of James doing this. He's been pointing out different sins throughout the different chapters, and, and we reach a bit of a climax here. And, and in this section, he, he's really drawing a line in the sand between believers and unbelievers in in a very strong way. He's not saying that believers don't sin. It's obvious that believers do sin because he is addressing believers who are sinning. But what he does is he shows how contrary living a sinful lifestyle is to the Christian faith. They they don't match. It's, It's totally contrary. A sinful lifestyle is over here and and obedience to God is over here. These things do not match at all. And and it's almost as though he's making us make a choice. He's saying, choose this day whom you will serve. And he does this by showing the absolute incompatibility of Christianity and sinful living. Douglas Moo says, in the midst of of his exhortation about speech, envy, and divisiveness, James breaks out in a passionate summons to his readers to turn away from their worldly ways and submit themselves wholeheartedly once again to their gracious 
but jealous God. James gathers up all the specific issues that he deals with in his letter into one all-embracing demand. So we saw last time that James begins this section by addressing conflict within the church. And so he asks the rhetorical question, where do wars and fights, not literal, but, but where do arguments and contention in the church come from? And we learn that contention is, is usually the result of uncontrolled desires for sinful pleasure. And this is not just sexual pleasure. This can be the pleasure of obtaining whatever it is that you desire, whether it be position, power, authority, you name it. Reputation. And James says you lust for what you don't have, therefore you hate your brothers and sisters, you murder them in your hearts, and you desire strongly what you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. And it all boils down to, to sinful desires. And we need to keep this in mind. James then tells them that, that you do not have because you do not ask. The, the point being that, that God is the, the source of all good and he gives good things to his children who ask so that if there was anything that we needed, we should be asking God for it instead of lusting after it in a sinful way. Instead of coveting and envying for something that we desire, we should be asking God for. But then he says, you ask and don't receive because you ask amiss. In other words, you're asking God for things that you can spend on your lust. And, and, and either these people are doing this without actually realizing it, or they are really brazen. Because you, you have Christians who's, who, who are asking God for things, they're praying for things that they can use to fulfill sinful desires. And so these believers are driven by their sinful passions, and it's no longer just a private thing, but, but it's something that they begin to even ask God for, these things that they can obtain in order to fulfill their, their lust. And understanding this is important to, to what James is, is going to say in our text today. These people these believers, these, these Jewish Christians he, he is writing to, have gone to the point of fighting with one another over sinful desires and are even asking God to grant them things that they could use to sin. And so we're going to divide this text into four headings. The, the first heading is the seriousness of sin. Verse 4, adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? This is strong language here. You typically don't have believers referred to in this way. Some translations say adulterers and adulteresses, but as I understand the text, it should only say adulteresses. And the word is feminine. That's significant. And this is strange for a couple of reasons. Number one, we usually don't see Christians classified this way. Maybe a Christian falls into a sin, but, but do we have in Scripture Christians who are classified by their sins? We usually don't see this. And number two, why does he use the feminine form? Just adulteresses. Is he only referring to the women there who are, who are sinning? 
So what is James doing? He, he calls these believers adulteresses and he uses the feminine because he is using Old Testament language. James is writing to Jewish believers, the 12 tribes who are scattered abroad, and they understand this terminology very well. In the Old Testament, the relationship between God and his people was oftentimes compared to marriage. For example, Isaiah 54, for your maker is your husband. And he says, for the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. And we could turn to to Jeremiah where we read, Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. So God in the old covenant looks at his people as his wife in a manner of speaking, and he as their husband. And when they are unfaithful, it is compared to adultery. God was saying that the unfaithfulness and idolatry of Israel was like a wife being unfaithful to her husband. And if you want to know what this feels like, we see this vivid picture in the book of Hosea. Where Isaiah is, is commanded to marry a prostitute, a woman who would be unfaithful to him. But he, but he has to continue to be faithful to her, and he has to actually redeem her from slavery after she has been unfaithful. And God does this, why? This is what it's like, O oh Israel. That, that feeling of being cheated on. That, that feeling of unfaithfulness, even though you continue to be faithful and have to redeem her, that's what it's like when you are disloyal to me. And Jesus continues this, this type of language in the, in the New Testament by referring to those who rejected him as an evil and adulterous generation. So with very strong language, James equates the sinfulness of his readers to spiritual adultery. When Christians are are not faithful to God, we are playing the harlot as unfaithful wives. This is strong language. But James is doing this on purpose. He says adulteresses. Unfaithful Christians, those who are are playing the harlot right now. Do you not know that that friendship with the world is, is enmity with God? He is drawing a line in the sand. He is accusing his readers of, of spiritual adultery because of their friendship with the world. What is friendship with the world? Well, first of all, what is the world? Is he referring to the earth? No, he's, he's referring to the systems, the, the morals, the beliefs. Everything that is opposed to God can be summarized as the world. And what is friendship? The word is philia. And we, we, the, the, the verb form of this is the word phileo. And what is this often translated as? Love. This is an emotional type of love. MacArthur notes that James uses this word to describe intense and deep affection for the evil world system. 
Douglas Moo said the ancient view of friendship shed light on the seriousness of the charge that James is making here. We speak rather casually of friends in our day, but in the Hellenistic world, friendship involved sharing all things. So consider that. Sproul puts it this way, to be a friend of the world is to be more committed to the world than to God and thus to align oneself with the evil world system against God and his people. There is no spiritual neutrality. And he also says this is illicit spiritual intercourse and thus adultery. Friendship with the world is 100% incompatible with Christianity. This is the distinction James is making. Listen, listen to Christ himself. Or John, rather. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, what? The love of the Father is not in him. Those two things can't take place in the same heart. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. In other words, how could you love the world when nothing in the world, nothing of the world comes from the Father? John 15 If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Do you see this contention between Christ and the world? There's a line drawn. The world hates Christ and all of his people. How can a Christian be a friend To the world. James says it's not possible. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. What is enmity? It's hostility. God is so opposed to the world that that you cannot have friendship with the world without actually being hostile to God. Calvin put it this way, for such and so great is the disagreement between the world and God that as much as anyone inclines to the world, so much he alienates himself to God. To draw closer to the world, to draw near the world is to draw yourself away from God because they are diametrically opposed. And he adds to this statement. Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And in other words, because friendship with the world is hostility towards God, whoever embraces or loves or befriends the world makes himself an enemy of God. The, the world is everything that is against God. Therefore, to love that which is contrary to God is hostility towards God. And the person who is hostile to God does what? Makes himself an enemy. So to befriend the world is to join sides with God's enemy. Which means you are God's enemy. 
Now, now why is James talking about love for the world? Surely, Surely these believers were not actually loving the world, were they? I mean, Christians would not have affection for that which is contrary to God, would they? Have you ever experienced that as a Christian? Affections for that which you know is contrary to God? These Christians were being driven by what? Sinful passions. They're fighting and warring in the very church. Why? Sinful desires that are uncontrolled. You think those sinful passions, those sinful desires are for things of God? No. For things of the world. But, but it's not just about the sins of those who are fighting in the church here in chapter 4, but the, the application is much broader. This has to do with, with all of the sins that he has mentioned in this epistle. <clears throat> You see, our temptation is to think, yeah, the, these Christians were obviously struggling with certain sins, but it's not like that they were casting off Christ to follow the world. Was that a thought in your mind? Well, this is a little bit extreme to say that, that if I'm sinning against God, I'm actually loving the world. I mean, I'm not, it's not like I'm renouncing my allegiance to God and turning after the world. So this seems a bit Extreme. Once again, Moo puts it this way. We have no evidence that James' readers were overtly disclaiming God and consciously deciding to follow the world instead. So he's not talking about an overt thing, but their tendency to imitate the world by discriminating against people, chapter 2, by speaking negatively of others, chapter 3, by exhibiting bitter envy and selfish ambition, and by pursuing their own destructive pleasures, amounted to just that. James, as it were, wants to raise the stakes so that his readers see their compromising conduct for what it really is. God tolerates no rival. When believers have in a... a, when believers have in a worldly manner, live in a worldly manner rather, they demonstrate that at that point their allegiance to the world is greater than their allegiance to God. Do we understand that? So, so you're facing temptation. There's something that you desire. And you know, you you know without a shadow of doubt that it is contrary to God's will. What do you do? You have a choice at that point in time. Do you love God? Or do you love your sin? You you make a conscious choice at that point in time. and, And so often, what do we do? God, I know this is what you want me to do, but I desire this at the moment. I'm going to quiet my conscience, ignore my conscience, and I'm going to go after what I want in the world. What are we doing at that point in time? We are pledging our allegiance to the world, not to God. And James is not saying that, that when we do this, we, it's like we're casting off God permanently, but at that point in time... We are switching sides as traitors. 
At, at that point in time, we're saying, God, I know you are over here and the world is over here and these things are greatly opposed. But, but at this point in time, I'm going to step over here to the world because there's something that I really desire. Christians who are living and acting like the world are playing the harlot by being unfaithful to God. This is what James is saying. Adulteresses. Those who have been living unfaithful to God. This, this friendship you have with the world, going after the world, acting like the world, behaving like the world, is enmity with God. It's hostility towards God, and you are God's enemy once you do this. Do we recognize yet the seriousness of our sins? It's not just a matter of disobedience, it's a matter of allegiance. Whose side are we on? Do we want to live in a way that is hostile towards God? This is what we do when we choose to sin and be unfaithful. Our allegiance, dear friends, must be to God. For, for Christians, think, just, just wrap your mind around this. For, for Christians to forsake God for one moment, willingly, or in any way, to forsake God for one moment, like Sproul says, is to have illicit spiritual intercourse. And you say, well, I only did it once. When we look at this as, 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 as a marriage relationship, think about the absurdity of that. I only sinned once and it was a small sin. I only committed adultery once and it was a small adultery. What? But this is what James is saying. And this unfaithfulness to God, this spiritual adultery is a big deal. Why? Here's our second heading, the jealousy of God. Verse 5. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? And this is pretty hard to interpret. This quote is not actually found in Scripture, but it's the sum of what Scripture teaches. And, and I would agree with those who would translate this as, God yearns jealously for the spirit he has made to dwell in us. What does that mean? I believe this refers to God's jealousy for his people and their allegiance, their affection Think of this in terms of, of the previous verse. We just saw that James is equating unfaithfulness to God as adultery, and now he reminds us of God's jealousy. This makes perfect sense if we understand God's jealousy. When we look at God's jealousy in the Old Testament, Frame gives us this, this definition. It is a passionate zeal to guard the exclusiveness of a marriage relationship, leading to anger against an unfaithful spouse. And he points out, points out that in the Bible's emphasis on God's jealousy, we see that there is a profound analogy between God's covenant and the marriage relation. Idolatry is like adultery. 
So God is jealous for the allegiance and love and service of His people. And when we live for or like the world, what are we doing? Forsaking God for that which is opposed to God. We are serving and showing allegiance to idols when we forsake God for our sin. And this provokes God to jealousy. James is saying, you're living like adulteresses, unfaithful to your husband. But by the way, do you think Scripture says in vain that God is a jealous God? He doesn't say that in vain. The Bible doesn't tell us about God's jealousy in vain. That actually means something. God does not share his glory with another. God does not share his spouse with another. He does not tolerate that. And Frame points out that that God's jealousy in Scripture is closely connected to his wrath and his judgment. And we can think of how we would be provoked to jealousy if our spouses were unfaithful to us. We would have indignation. And I would argue that this would be a righteous indignation. Or could be. Difference, think of how that would provoke you. The, the, the anger. And think of how we have provoked God. God has, before the foundation of the world, loved us in such a way that He has called us to be His children. He has chosen us and He has adopted us as His children. He sent His Son to live and to die for us and He he poured out His wrath upon His Son instead of pouring it upon us. And He gave us the Holy Spirit to apply salvation to us and to help us in the process of sanctification. And what do we do? We cheat on Him. After all He has done for us, we provoke Him to wrath. God has been like a faithful husband caring for His bride. And after all that He has done for us, We play the harlot and forsake him by sinning against him and going after the world. Because of this, we we, we deserve the the severe judgment and the fiery wrath of God. But, But notice that James does not take it there. In my mind, that is the logical next step. You guys have committed adultery. Don't you realize that that God is jealous? Don't you realize that Scripture does not speak in vain of God's jealousy? He will not share His bride with another. And His jealousy is closely associated with His his anger and His wrath, with His his judgment. So we would think that James would would take us there, but he doesn't. He says in verse 6, but he gives more grace. And so our third heading here is the magnitude of God's grace. He gives more grace. 
Again, we, we should expect to hear about the, the fiery indignation of God because of our unfaithfulness, but instead we hear that God gives more grace. This is astounding. Why does James do this? He does this because he is writing to believers for whom there is no longer condemnation. He's not threatening believers here with with hellfire because he knows that believers are actually secure. James is not calling those who are already Christians to repent by using fear of threats. He is luring us to repentance here by the grace of God. There are time for threats. But that's not what he does here. He says, you have been unfaithful, but because you are already believers, Jesus has paid for your sins. God's grace is sufficient to cover your unfaithfulness. Does this not melt our hearts in thankfulness? He builds this case about our our spiritual adultery and shows us how we are unfaithful and how we oftentimes take sides with the world instead of taking sides with God. And he shows us how we, we, we side with God's enemy and we become God's enemy when we do that. And all of a sudden, when we think we're going to get the verdict guilty, he says God's grace is sufficient. Now, dear friends, is this a license to sin? The true believer would never use such grace as a license to sin. The true believer is motivated to obedience by such grace. And this is what James is doing. He says, listen, Christian, I believe you are really a Christian, but you are treading on thin ice you are siding with the world. You are loving the world. You, you have been forsaking your God, playing the harlot, committing adultery. You are on very thin ice. You need to make a choice. Are you God's or someone else's? Do you, do you want to go after God or do you want to go after the world? Make the choice. And then he lures us to God. Calls us to obedience. By using God's grace. Not his wrath here. He's talking to believers. But his grace. I want you to think of this in terms of your own marriage. Imagine your spouse. No, imagine you rather. Cheating on your spouse, committing adultery. Think of the shame and the guilt that you, would, that you would feel. And you know that you have to stand before your spouse and, and explain what you have done, and you know the, the, the anger your spouse is going to have at this, the, 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 the lack of trust your spouse is going to feel. And, and you are expecting, I am going to get hammered for this. My spouse is going to leave me. They, they won't like me anymore. They will never trust me. They will be disgusted at me. And so you, you, you tell your spouse these things and what happens? Your spouse shows grace. Now what does that do to you? 
If you are truly penitent, what does that do to you? Does it make you say, yes, I have a license to do it again? Or does it melt your heart in thankfulness for such grace and mercy and love that has been shown to you? Does it not increase your, your love and your thankfulness for that spouse, for, for that mercy that has been shown to you? And does that, does that not make you say, what a wonderful spouse I have to show me such grace. I want, to, I want to be much more loyal than I have ever been in my life to such a person who would show me such grace. Again, not a license to sin, but a motivation to give God our allegiance. The world, dear friends, offers no such grace But God does. Once again, Douglas Moo puts it this way. James here is reminding us that God's grace is completely adequate to meet the requirements imposed on us by that jealousy. Our God is a consuming fire and his demand for our exclusive allegiance may seem terrifying. But our God is also merciful. Gracious, loving, and willingly supplies all that we need to meet his all-encompassing demands. As Augustine said, God gives what he demands. So as Christians, we are forgiven. But there also should be warning with this. Because what, 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 what does Jesus say in the parable of the sowers? That there was this seed that grew in the thorny ground. And it grew and it grew and it seemed like it was going to produce fruit. And what happened? The thorns choked it. What were those thorns? The cares of the world. This is a call, dear friends, for us to examine our own hearts. And and, and if you have been going after the world, loving the world, giving the world your affection over God, you, you need to examine yourself right now. Am I this seed in the parable of the sower that is going to have the spiritual life choked out of it? By the cares of the world? Or am I going to be the, the seed that, that receives more grace? The, the seed that was, that was planted on, on good ground? How, how do we respond to this? If we respond to such a thing by, by going on living in our sins, then maybe we are like the seed that is sown on thorny ground that never produces fruit. Because the cares of the world kills it. This person was never truly a believer. They, they professed faith in Christ and it, looks like, it looked like they were going to be a good Christian person. And then the cares of the world sucks the life out of them. But there are others who are true believers. And perhaps for a time they, they, they struggle. They, 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 they look at the things of the world and, and they say those things look so attractive. So I'm going to go after those things. 
So you have these two different people. And now James brings us to a conclusion here. How do we respond to what James has said? James puts it this way. Therefore he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He's calling us to something here. Do, do we hear this and respond to this in pride? I don't need any more grace. God says, James rather says, he resists the proud. God resists the proud. But, but who is it? Who is it here that receives grace? It is the humble. The humble person receives grace. I love what Thomas Watson says. He answers the question, where, where does this humility come from? He says, poverty of spirit is the cause of humility. For when a man sees his want of Christ and, and how he lives on the alms of free grace, this makes him humble. He that is sensible of his own vacuity and indigence hangs his head in humility with the violet. Humility is the sweet spice that grows from poverty of spirit. So here's the question, dear friend. You who are, who are struggling with, with loving the world, do you have poverty of spirit? This will tell you if you have true spiritual life. Are you poor in spirit? The, the person who is poor in spirit is, is humble. The person who is poor in spirit recognizes that he has nothing in and of himself. The, the person who is poor in spirit recognizes that it is all of grace. The person poor in spirit says, I can do nothing. I can't save myself. I can't be good enough. I can't just turn my life around and, and do the right things and earn salvation. I need Christ. The proud person says, yeah, I have love for the world, but I'm not that bad of a person. Trust me, there are many more people who sin much worse than I. We have all been guilty of unfaithfulness to God. And each and every one of us have at times befriended the world and committed Spiritual adultery, yet we are told His grace is sufficient. Dear friends, are we humble enough to say, Lord, we need Your grace. I, I need Your grace from the very beginning because I would have never been, been saved without Your grace, but, but I need Your grace to go on because I can't continue living the Christian life without more and more grace. The proud man denies this need. And he proves that he is really not a Christian. Dear friends, do each and every one of you here see your need for grace today? If not, you better cry out to God to show you. Pray that he would show you your, your awful state outside of Christ, how you are under his wrath, and how you can't earn salvation. And ask Him to show you the grace that is offered to you through faith in Jesus Christ. 
and those who humble themselves in faith and repentance shall be forgiven. They shall receive this, this abundant grace. And so I ask you this, this very day to make a decision. Th think about this. Where are you at in your life right now? If you are loving the world and struggling with this right now, do you understand how contrary this is to the Christian faith? And if you do, what James is, is telling you to do is to run to Christ for grace and mercy. Confess your sins to God. Confess your, your disobedience. Confess your spiritual adultery to God and repent. Turn away from it. And understand that when you do that, His grace is sufficient. It is enough. And what a wonderful thing for, for those of us who have assurance of our faith that, that we know that even on a daily basis we struggle with things. We, we look at things and we say, this is of the world and I'm struggling not to desire this. Dear saint, His grace is sufficient. You struggle with this daily. Does it mean that I'm no longer a Christian because I struggle with this? His grace is sufficient. Am I going to lose my salvation and, and go to hell because I, because I, I had an issue where I, where I struggled to, to love the world last week? His grace is sufficient, dear believer. We don't lose His grace. For the true believer where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. What a wonderful thing. Because if you're honest with yourself, you know that you're not perfect. You, you know that you love the world way more than you should. But look, don't let this discourage you. Don't be downcast about this because as James says, he gives more grace. Simply humble yourself and recognize your need for his grace and you will receive it. Let us pray. Dear God, we have seen these strong words in our text today. And Father, we know that we all struggle with love for the world to some degree. We thank you that your grace is sufficient. What a wonderful reminder that we never...